Hey, let me pray again. Father, would you still our hearts? Would you make us receptive by the working of your spirit to truth from your word that you want us to know and use? Lord, in that, would you glorify your son, Jesus, and help us to see him more fully? We do pray in his name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, Kathy and I were at Dr. Joseph Cassidy's funeral. That's of Lion and Lamb, Joe Cassidy's father. And uh, Dr. Cassidy had been in the U.S. military, I believe it was the Navy, for 30 years or so. Uh, Like Kathy's father, Bill, who we buried in February, both of them were veterans of the World War II era. And so because of that, uh, they had military honor guards at these funerals. I don't know if you've, if you've seen a funeral with that, but it's, uh, for me at least, it's profoundly touching and emotional to see a single trumpeter stand off by himself and play taps. The color guard uh, takes the American flag that's draped over the coffin there at the graveside. They gently and respectfully fold it up and then they solemnly hand that to the eldest survivor of the person being buried and they say something like this, and this varies depending on which service, branch of service the person was in. Uh, They say, on behalf of the President of the United States and the people of a grateful nation, may I present this flag as a token of appreciation for the honorable and faithful service your loved one rendered this nation it is memorial day weekend and it's uh, a fitting thing that at least annually we remember uh, men and women who basically given their lives in the service of this country so that we can enjoy freedom and the things that we have that we don't have to think about are easy to take for granted but the cost of freedom historically or spiritually is very, very high. And it's not something that we can afford to lose sight of, not something we can afford to forget. Tom Brokaw said of the greatest generation, that is the generation pretty much that we're burying these days. Think of my own parents or uh, Bob Schneider recently or Joe's parents. The greatest generation... Uh, grew up or or was born and started growing up right after what was called at the time the Great War, the war to end all wars, World War I. And shortly after their birth, for most of them, they went through the Great Depression, the worst economic time this, this nation has ever seen. And on top of that, they then enter World War II. Uh, you, you know, what they went through in their lifetime was hard to conceive. You know, if I had grown up and lived in that same time, you would wonder, is the world coming to an end? Related to World War II specifically, let me list just a little bit of the cost of that war. And this is a very short list on a couple of the big things that we can sort of itemize. If you take out losses for Germany and Italy and Japan, so this doesn't include what we would typically call aggressor nations in World War II, There were about 16 million military personnel that died. There were an additional 30 million civilian deaths. So World War II on the victim side, if you will, about 46 million people died. Of the military deaths, just under half a million Americans died in World War II. 
the loss of life was absolutely staggering in World War II. Financially, and finance isn't raised to the level of a person's life, but it costs something to engage in war. In today's dollars, World War II cost the United States about $4 trillion. And that was over a third of our GDP, gross domestic product. Over a third of what the country did was going to the war effort through World War II. Internationally, the cost at today's dollars is estimated at $20 trillion, the cost of World War II. Now, when you say numbers this big, what, what does it mean? Joseph Stalin famously said, one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistic. You know, so we rattle off these numbers, but it's hard to wrap your, your arms around our minds around, what does that look like? That many million people dead. That much money, labor, energy spent for the cause of freedom. And remember, that's absolutely what was at stake. You know, if the United States hadn't entered World War II in Europe, Europe may well today be speaking German across the board, German and Italian, and not freely so. Or Japan in the, the Pacific Rim area also. So... There's no mistake that the cost for freedom is huge. It's high. It's almost incalculable. But we live in the benefit of what others were willing to sacrifice for our freedom. We still live in the benefit of that today. On this Memorial Day weekend, it's a good thing to remember those who've gone before us. Some have paid what Lincoln called at Gettysburg the last full measure of devotion. So it's no small thing that we sit here today enjoying the freedom that others have provided. And not only that, but ultimately more important for us to remember that spiritually, uh, if you're a Christian, uh, you have a liberty and a freedom that was incalculably more costly than World War II was. Uh, that the incarnation of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, His crucifixion for us was incalculably more expensive, if you will, than the cost of something like World War II. And it does us good to pause and remember what our freedom costs for this reason. If we forget what our freedom costs, it's easy to treat it lightly. And it's easy to give it away, to give it up. And we're in a passage this morning in Colossians, we're continuing through Colossians 2, in which Paul's telling Christians, just like you and me, he says, don't be taken captive like prisoners of war. Don't be taken in. You've got something and someone in Christ, this supreme liberator, this person who gave the last full measure, all that he could for your freedom. Don't treat it lightly. Understand how costly and valuable it is so that you walk in the benefit of it. And doing that, you give honor to Christ who at the cost of his eternal life laid down his life for hours. So we're in Colossians 2 this morning. I'm going to read from the ESV, starting at verse 6 and going through verse 15. 
Paul continues there, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him or live in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Paul says there in verse 6 and 7, you guys started well when you received Christ. You heard the Gospel from Epaphras. You believed it. You received it. This word received also can be uh, in the sense of you took hold of something. The same word is used when Joseph took Mary to be his wife. He didn't just believe in Mary, he received her. He took Mary to himself. Or when Joseph took Mary and Jesus to Egypt, it's the same word. So Paul says, when you heard the Gospel through Epaphras, you received the truth of Jesus. You accepted it, you saw it for what it was, and you laid hold of it. So there's this security in their own history. You got Jesus. When you heard the Gospel, you understood it, you comprehended it, you laid hold of it. And now he says, Remember where you started, and that's the same way you need to continue to live out. Keep going in the direction you started. Now when he tells them, you've started well, he uses some imagery that's helpful for me. So for instance, in verse 7, he says, you were rooted in Christ. You're rooted in Him. You know, It's a season for planting, maybe past it a little bit. Our tomato plants are in, I know. Shrubs or trees. You know when you plant something new initially, if you went back a week later or two weeks later, you could pull it right back out of the ground because it's just got a root ball. But if you give that plant some time to establish itself, those roots spread out through the soil and come back a year later or two years later and try and pull that out, you can't. Paul says of the Colossian Christians, he says you guys are like a tree or a plant that's been planted in the soil that is Christ. And so your life has gone down into Christ, just like roots. You've got this established nature of your life is in Christ Himself. You started and you were like a planting. You're planted in Christ. You're established in Christ. You can't be easily removed. That's one image of a plant. He also says, verse 7, you've been built on Him, on Christ. The picture here is that there's a foundation of a house. And your life has been laid on the foundation that is Christ. You know, biblically, it's an important thing that we have a firm foundation. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. 
when we hear God's Word and obey it, we're like a wise man building a house on a rock. And that's the picture here. Jesus is this firm foundation that your life is being built up on. It's the best foundation. So you're a plant in the ground. You're rooted and growing. You're a building that's going up on the absolutely best, sure foundation. It doesn't matter what comes. It cannot be shaken. He says also in verse 7, you've been established in your faith. That means confirmed, ratified, or strengthened. They're not brand new Christians. Paul's never met them, but they've been going along in the faith for a while. And he said, your, your life, your faith in Christ has been strengthened, ratified. It's been confirmed. You've experienced that over time. And he also says, verse 7, you're overflowing with thanksgiving. In other words, you've experienced enough of the reality of Christ, His peace and His joy, His transforming power in your life, that you're like a cup that's been overflowing with thanksgiving because you realize what you've got in Christ. So if we paraphrase this, we could say, Paul says to them this, you've received and taken hold of Christ. You've been planted in Christ. You've been built on Christ. You've been strengthened in Christ. You're overflowing with thanksgiving because of Christ. So, since that's your case, since that's your history, in light of all that, don't let anyone take you captive. Don't let anyone lead you astray from the riches of the freedom and the liberty you have in Christ. This moves us to verse 8. This is the theme of this morning's teaching. Let no one take you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. Make sure no one conquers you. Makes you a prisoner of war. Captures you. Takes you away from what properly belongs to you. This is spiritual warfare language. You know, in World War II, when uh, the Germans started rolling through Europe, uh, they came to the northern borders of France. And the French looked at the German military might, and they said, uh, we give up. We surrender. There was no real fighting before the French gave up. They, they didn't fight. They said, we're willing to be taken captives. And I don't say that to disparage the French. If there's any French uh, heirs here, I'll do apologies noted, whatever. Uh, but the French didn't fight. Half, half of French territory was simply ceded to the Germans. They didn't fight. Paul says to us as Christians that we are to contend, that we're to hold on to something. Because otherwise there's the threat that we will be taken captive that we will become prisoners of the spiritual war, which, by the way, is the much bigger, much more costly, much more important war in eternal things. So, if you tell me all these things are true of me in Christ, I'm planted in Christ, I'm built on Christ, I'm strengthened in Christ, this is all true already, then how could the enemy come in and make me his captive? Because it couldn't be by power. It could not be by a frontal assault. Because if power's the thing, the God of all power owns me. And I'm His and He's mine. And He fills me up. So, if I'm going to be taken captive, if I'm going to become a prisoner of war, it won't be through power. It'll be through deception. And that's what Paul's warning about here in this text this morning you would have to be duped. You would have to voluntarily give up your freedom in order to be taken captive. 
Christians can't be taken captive if it's a power issue. So it will have to be a deception issue, Paul says. Verse 8, he articulates the variety of ways this might come across. He says, by philosophy, by empty deceit, by human tradition, by the elemental spirits of the world, but not according to Christ. We'll work through these. Paul says, don't be taken captive, don't be fooled, don't be duped, don't give up your liberty through philosophy. Now, there's nothing wrong with philosophy. Philosophy just means that we love words or knowledge. We love knowledge. That's a good thing. And the, the age that Paul spoke in and lived in, they loved philosophy too. They had been developing, the Greeks, of course, philosophy for a long time. This is still the Greco-Roman world they're in. So it wasn't that we wouldn't have a philosophy. Everyone has a philosophy of life, a way of seeing things, perceiving things, sort of putting things in boxes and figuring it out. Everyone has philosophy. But Paul said these would be philosophies that would move you away from the truth and the reality of Christ, who he was and what he'd done. So they're going to be against Christ philosophies. In Paul's day, two of the big schools of thought that we still are aware of today would have been the Stoics and the Epicureans. They had a philosophy of life to pursue what they saw as the highest good. So if you were a Stoic, they advocated tranquility through simple living and personal integrity. We think of Stoics today as people that can put up with a lot and not have their feathers ruffled. Because they saw that sort of a a tranquil spirit reflected a great character, and that was success. Or the Epicureans, a pleasure was the highest good. And they didn't just mean sensual, uh, immorality kind of pleasure. Uh, They meant any, any pleasure to the soul was the highest good. So when the Colossians heard the Gospel, they heard it in the context of these kinds of philosophies. These kinds of philosophies did not lead to Christ. So Paul says, be careful of the philosophies in your day. These were the Greek specific. He's going to get into the other ones that will come up here in the next section we look at. But the gospel is always received in the context of competing philosophies. And that's what Paul's saying. Be careful of what you listen to. What's its frame of reference? How does it parse reality? And what does it do with the gospel? What are the inferences for that philosophy related to the gospel in the last century in the 18 middle 1800s into the early 1900s new philosophies started to develop that led to world war ii so for instance darwinism though we don't think of it this way we tend to think of darwinism as purely a science issue but it was darwinism as a philosophy of life that led to the german people believing that you could experiment on people Uh, Darwinism led to eugenics, the thought that we want to cleanse and purge the human race of inferior products amongst us. So Darwinism, the thought that we're just the product of random chances and processes of evolutionary forces over time, that led to what German people did to people they considered evolutionarily their inferiors. So for them, there was not an immoral issue in experimenting or committing genocide for many of them because it was absolutely consistent with the philosophy of life they'd embraced through Darwinism. Higher criticism. It's interesting, the Germans, great folks in so many ways and and some real downsides too. Uh, The Germans uh, came up with higher criticism, what we call today. 
And that basically was a way of looking back at the Scriptures of the Bible to, to, at the end of the day, say they're really not God's Word. They really don't tell ultimate truth. We've, we've looked at how they've come, how the Scriptures have been propagated, and there's all these ways to take it apart, and we found out at the end of the day it's really not the truth. And that led to people chucking the truth of the Scriptures. It was another philosophy that was opposed to Christ. Uh, for Germany itself, uh, before and during World War II, They'd been so humiliated after World War I with the Treaty of Versailles and the penalties of that treaty to them were so onerous that nationalism as a way of life, as a philosophy of life, the fatherland, that the fatherland was all and that we would do all things for the glory of the fatherland, that became the guiding philosophy for the Germans before and during World War II as well. So their philosophies determine where we go. Those were competing philosophies with the gospel. Today, atheistic naturalism. By the way, this is the philosophy that by many, if not most Americans, is just assumed. Atheistic naturalism. There is no God. Matter is all. The universe has produced itself. We are the product of random chances and processes over time that somehow come together to produce life. But there is no God to answer to. You know, if there's no God to answer to, you do not have arguments to the contrary. You do not have an adequate basis for morality. If you don't believe in a God, you do not have an adequate basis for morality. Um, So atheistic naturalism, moral relativism is the stepchild of atheistic naturalism. If there's no God, then there's no one to say something is right or wrong. It's what you think and what I think. So there's absolutely no basis for a universal morality. So everything's relative. It's, it's worth what I say it's worth. Abortion's a fine example of this. Is a baby in the womb a person or not? See, if there's absolutes and you say absolutes a human, you've got an issue if you don't want that baby. If you say that baby has the value I assign it, its value is relative to my desires, then I can do anything I want. It's all relative. The baby's worth what I say it is. Truth is what I say it is. Moral relativism is the absolute predictable fruit of a life or a world or a philosophy that says there's no God. You have no basis, no adequate basis for morality. And most recently along the same line is the new atheism, the new atheism, more of the same, of course. It's dressed up in a little bit more academic and intellectual language And it seeks to make life satisfying for an atheistic view of life. So this is the current stream of things. Uh, The Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens has has died, of course, last year. Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and there's another well-known writer whose name escapes me at this moment. They're promoting the new version of atheism today. So as I look out here, I know there's several of you that are in college or heading to college. And do you know the most dangerous place in the world? No kidding, the most dangerous place in the world for Christian faith is at colleges and universities. And it is absolutely the goal of many university and college professors to strip Christians of Christian faith. And you know, if you talk about scrutiny, the truth will stand up to the harshest, most severe scrutiny. I'm absolutely with you. I'm I'm all over that. The truth will stand up to all scrutiny. But in universities and colleges, the truth doesn't get a fair hearing. So if you're in universities or colleges or you're heading there, you really need to understand that you're heading into real spiritual warfare. 
the goal of many people there and, and simply the fruit of other people's philosophies is to rob people of Christian faith. And it'll be in what they say. It'll be in the textbooks you read. It'll be out of the mouths of the fellow students. So if you don't go in there knowing, there's competing philosophies here. There's deception that's intentionally a part of this scenario I'm going into. If we don't go in with our eyes open, there's a good chance that just as Paul was warning, you'll be deceived. You'll become a spiritual prisoner of war because you'll lay down your liberty it costs Christ to die to give us if you don't realize this is a competing antichrist philosophy. So universities and colleges, and I am not opposed to education, by the way. You know, the thing is, and this is something we're talking about as a church, if in your youth you're not growing up and making the faith your own, when you get to a point in the road, a place to make a decision, if you don't already know, you're sunk. I was talking to a leader of a youth ministry here in Topeka the other day, and he said he tells the, the, his young folks that are going into college, he says, you'll find what you want. What do you want? If you want to pursue in the Christian faith and fellowship and grow in the faith, you'll find other Christians. And if you want to find the partying crowd, that's what you'll find too. If you want to give your faith away, you'll do that too. But coming up, you can't make your mind up, if it's not already made up, when you get to the university or college, a place where there's real pressure, real alternate realities presented to you, you may find yourself in trouble. So Paul says, be careful of competing philosophies. And people won't come up and tell you, I have a competing philosophy. They'll tell you what they think. And some of it will be winning and engaging. They'll tell you what they think, and that's their philosophy. So be careful, he says, of competing philosophies. He continues and says, watch out for empty deceit. It's delusion or deception. It's vacuous. There's nothing really in it. You know, this is something too. Sometimes you'll talk to people and you'll ask them what they believe. Well, I'm, I'm not sure or I think I believe this. And if you probe more deeply, you'll find out, well, they, they really don't believe anything. They're just going along and doing as they please. Well, it's an empty deceit. It's not based on anything substantial. Paul says, be careful of empty deceits. If someone presents a competing philosophy, ask rigorous questions. What does that mean? What does it infer? Where does that take you? On what foundation is that based? He also says, be careful of human tradition. You know, in the Greek world and and the Hebrew world, for that matter, um, if you were part of a philosophical school, you went from, from teacher to student. The student becomes the teacher, teaches the student. So, you know, you think of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. There's this handing down of a tradition from one person, one generation to another. Now, we all have traditions. And Christians should have things they hand down too. That doesn't mean traditions are bad. But here Paul says it's merely human tradition. Be careful of what is merely human that someone else is trying to pass on to you today. If you think of this, we have hand-me-down philosophies today that are from Darwin and Freud and the German higher critics. Those are merely human traditions. In contrast, Paul says, to the truth of the Gospel. So Paul got the Gospel directly from Jesus. We assume Epaphras got it from Paul. 
And that's what Epaphras gave to the Colossians. Now this is a tradition in this sense. The Gospel is handed from one person to another, but here it's divine. It's supernatural. It's not merely human. It's the one we want to hang on to. So don't, don't fall prey to merely human tradition. He also says here the elemental spirits of the world. The commentaries are a little bit all over the place, but the consistency of this language through Colossians seems to be angelic powers. Whether we see them as forces that rule the stars and the planets, you remember in those days, people would, uh, astrology was sort of part of their philosophy of life, that my life is ruled by the stars and the planets, which are themselves ruled by these angelic mystical powers. And certain areas on life are ruled by either angelic powers or demigods. This was absolutely consistent with Greek and Roman mythology. You know, local gods that ruled over one aspect of life or another. He says, don't be taken in. This will come up later in the uh, next time, I believe. Don't be taken in by these people who are telling you to pay attention to, follow the lead of these powers that claim allegiance in some area of life or another. So astrology would be the closest we'd have to this today. So, he says you started well, you're going to face deception. Your liberty can't be taken from you, but you could be taken captive if you fall for the right kind of reasoning. Now he's going to give them five reasons why they should not capitulate and become prisoners of war, and we'll run through those quickly here. He says the first reason is you've been filled with Christ. Paul always brings it back to what we have in Christ. So in verses 9 and 10, in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in Him. Jesus is very God of very gods. We're going to hear this multiple times by the time we're done with this four-chapter letter. He's the very God of very gods. He's eternal. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. And Paul says you've been filled up in Him. Now, I'm a limited person. And if my life is represented by a vase, I can only hold so much. If you take the eternal and you put me in it or you put it in me, is there any problem with me being filled up? There's no room left. I'm going to overflow, right? I can't hold it all. Paul says you've already been filled up. Your life contains as much as it can contain in Christ. Any other philosophy, any other school of thought, any other rationale for living that you choose to pursue cannot fill your life the way Christ has. You'll be giving something up. You won't be gaining something if you walk away from the liberty you have in Christ. He says on the second point here, you've had the ultimate mark of God's covenant. There's lots of speculation on what is, what's the underlying message that Paul's confronting in the New Testament and John also. And we talk about Gnosticism. It's this teaching that there's hidden knowledge that only select few could get. But there's a couple things in Colossians by which we know that it's probably a form of Gnosticism that we might call Jewish mysticism. And we know that because they're talking about angels, they're talking about circumcision, and they're talking about the Sabbath day. So this isn't just a Gentile-induced philosophy. This has Jewish roots here. So Paul says... 
And remember throughout the New Testament, the Jews are trying to figure out what, is, what does it mean for a Gentile to believe in our Messiah? Do they have to become a Jew? Do they have to have a physical circumcision like everyone before had had? So Paul says here, don't worry about a Jewish philosophy that invites you physically to be circumcised. He says here, you've already been circumcised. And here in this economy, it's not just the boys that get circumcised. It's the boys and the girls. It's the men and the women. And this circumcision, Paul says, it's not that God cuts a little bit of your flesh off like in a male circumcision. That flesh, that skin, it dies, right? That's what happens. Paul says here, no, this is, a, this is an all-encompassing circumcision. And the circumcision here is spiritual, And the circumcision occurs when you are joined with Christ in His death and His resurrection. So a physical circumcision, a small piece of skin is removed from a man, it dies. The man's life goes on. In this circumcision, Paul says, that applies to everyone in Christ, it's not a little bit of you that died. It's all of you. It's everything I was short of Christ. It's all of my fallen humanity and nature, Paul says, was circumcised, was taken out of the way when I died with Christ on the cross. And I was buried with Christ on the cross. And I raised with Christ out of the grave. So Paul says this is an all-encompassing circumcision. Don't go back to some weaker version of religion because you can't get a more complete circumcision than this one. All that we were, all that was deficient, joined with Christ in His death and resurrection. And he says that in the language of baptism here. When you were baptized in Christ. Romans 6 is the same imagery. So when a person is baptized, they go under the water like they've died and they're buried. And they come up as a symbol of resurrection life. And Paul says that's what's happened to you If you're a Christian, your baptism is a picture of that complete circumcision. So if I want to avoid my old sinful ways, Paul says some lesser circumcision, it won't do. The one we have in Christ, it will. So you want freedom from your sinful disposition? It's in Christ. It's a complete circumcision, not a partial. He also says, because God has already given us resurrection life, All of us are really after life, more life, the experience of more life, whatever we think of that as, whatever that looks like, whatever imagery that conjures in our mind. We're both after, we're all after more of life. Well, Paul says you already have resurrection life in verse 13. God made alive together with Him. You know, there are many Christians today who will tell you they're, I say Christians, I'm using the term Lucy, they'd identify themselves as Christians. But if you say, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And they'll tell you something like, I'm not sure. Or that I have a view of life, a philosophy that when I die, I'll see God or I'll see Jesus face to face or I'll see Peter. And then I'll find out if I'm going to heaven or hell. That's a pagan notion. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. That's not New Testament teaching. So Paul says here, you already have eternal life. You know, John 5, 24, we're told that you've already passed. Those believe in Christ have already passed out of judgment and into life. Christians possess what Jesus calls eternal life, life to the ages. You've already got it. 
It's eternal. Some people say, can I lose my salvation? And I just say, can you lose eternal life? It's life to the ages. Can you lose it? By definition, if you have it, you can't. Paul says, you've already got something. Don't try and go get it someplace else. Don't try and find life someplace else. You've got eternal life now. God's already given it to you in Christ. You can't get more of it. You've got life now in Christ. He also says, don't go to some deficient philosophy. Don't become a captive or a prisoner of war to some deficient other view of reality or life because all your potential charges of sin have already been settled at the cross. He says that in verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this God set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love this. Of all of them, this is my favorite. So, when Jesus hangs on the cross, Matthew 27-37 says that the Romans put a plaque up there. You remember what it says? This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Why'd they do that? Because that's the charge against Him. This guy claimed to be a king. This Jewish low-life guy claims to compete with Caesar. So, you know, though Pilate said, I really find no guilt in him, they've got to have a charge or they can't execute him. So this is the charge. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Jesus dies, as it were, in the Roman world for this charge, the claim to be king, insurrection. That's the charge. That's why he dies, as far as the Romans are concerned. Paul takes that imagery and he says this. When Jesus died on the cross, God took, as it were, a piece of paper and he wrote all your sins down on it. Now, you know, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, right? How many of our sins were future when He died on the cross? All. Some people have a, a difficulty with forgiveness. God can forgive my past. He might forgive my present. I'm not sure that He can forgive my future. And you say, well, how many of your sins were future when Jesus died? I think they all were. They were all future. What sin can you and I commit that God doesn't already know will commit? He's omniscient. He never learns. He knows all things. Okay? So, God who knows every sin you and I will ever commit, ever have committed, He writes them down on a piece of paper. And what's He do? He nailed it to Jesus' cross. What does that mean? That means Jesus took your penalty and mine. That means your sins are already covered. Guys, this means you can't atone for your sins. You can't pay for your sins. It's impossible. They've already been paid for. Your sins and mine to God don't exist you can't be held liable for sins that were on Jesus' cross. That's why this, this whole notion of am I saved or not, am I forgiven, I'm forgiven. And you know, when we as Christians struggle with the guilty conscience, we're missing what God wants us to get. I'm not minimizing sin, by the way, when I say this. Sin is still a bad deal. And we all do it. And we need to confess our sins because God wants to restore our relationship and he wants to change our thinking and our thought processes you can't pay for your sins god cannot hold you accountable for your sins jesus has already paid for them so on the cross when he died my guilt was listed every one of mike's sins was on the cross when jesus dies he died for my sins they're already gone they're already atoned for so if you want to find a religion that can give you better 
clearer conscience, good luck. Seriously, many people, you know, when you share with others, we all have a conscience, even if we harden it, you know, even if we violate it, we still have a conscience. You want a clear conscience? Christianity is the only religion, the only faith, and Jesus is the only person that can actually clear your conscience adequately. You won't find it anyplace else. They're gone. Their sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus. Last, because the angelic powers you seek help from were defeated by Christ, you see that in verse 15. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Him. Uh, this means, this by inference means, that the angelic powers that the Colossians might have been tempted to seek help from are demonic. Because Jesus' victory in the cross and His resurrection, it's over sin and Satan and all of Satan's followers, demons. So there are people today who seek instruction through mystical or uh, mediums or people who talk with the dead. This is just demonic. And Paul says, no, Jesus defeated the demons. So why would you go, one, to the enemy for help, and two, the enemy that's already been defeated for help? What sense does that make? So you see, in all of these, no one can take our freedom away from us, but we can lay it down. No one can forcibly remove it from us, but if we're deceived, we can give it up. We can wave the the white flag and say, "I, I surrender, I'm your prisoner of war, but we don't have to, and we shouldn't. Can you imagine... If after VE Day, May 8, 1945, when the Allies have won, the Germans have given unconditional surrender, can you imagine if the French said, no, but we want to voluntarily live under the, what's left of the Third Reich? Would that make any sense at all? I mean, just, would you really want that? People that don't like you, that will put you in prison and use you and take all that you've produced for their own sake, would you really want that? I mean, one, you'd think they've lost their sanity. But two, think of this as well, and don't forget this. What would that say to the families of the soldiers that were buried at Normandy? What would that say to the lives of all those people who had died for French liberation? We didn't really want it anyway. You know, what you did wasn't that big a thing anyway. You know, the British under Churchill, they've been bombed by Germany, you know, bombed out of their minds, London, for years. What if the Brits had said to Winston, ah, we just think the Germans have a better deal, better option than you. It'd be the same thing. Now, hold on. Those are the people that want to subjugate you. They want to hurt you. They don't want to help you. Why is this? When we as Christians buy into second-rate philosophies, deceptions and traditions we are not only voluntarily laying aside the liberty we have in christ but we're saying to jesus death and sacrifice it wasn't that important it's not that meaningful to me what you did for me on the cross it's not that big a deal so i'll just go and i'll i'll work at something else i'll follow someone else's philosophy or rationale We need to realize what we're saying when we take in opposing counterfeit philosophies, religious claims, you name it. 
empty deceits. Let me close with some words for Lincoln from Lincoln at Gettysburg. When he was a very short speech, I think it's interesting that he said what we say here today will not be long remembered. Gosh, you know the Gettysburg Address by Lincoln, it's memorized by school kids today, still hundred and almost 50 years later. Uh, when he was dedicating the field at Gettysburg, this site of huge human carnage, I mean the loss of life immense, he stated that it could not be more fully consecrated or hallowed than it already was through the deaths of the soldiers who died there. That those who laid down their lives had already consecrated that, that the living couldn't consecrate it more fully than it already had been. He said also it was for the living to be dedicated to the unfinished work the dead gave their lives for and that an increased devotion to the cause of freedom and unity should be the fruit of their sacrifice. When we think of what Jesus did for us, the full cost of devotion for us, His death, what your liberation and mine cost was infinite. And more than the soldiers or the Americans at Gettysburg or more than the post-World War II generations, we need to assess, this is what my liberty cost. And understanding the cost of my faith and liberty and life, I need to value that. I need to cherish that. I need to lay hold of that. And I need to test opposing philosophies and religious claims and ways of living life that are presented by others and see them for the sham that they are. And when I don't, I'm minimizing Jesus' death for me. I'm minimizing the liberty He died to give me. And that is something we don't want to do Memorial Weekend or any other time. Father God, we thank You that in Your great and sovereign will, God the Son came down on earth and took on our sins on the cross. Father, debts we couldn't pay, He paid for us. Life we couldn't achieve, He gained for us. Lord, this weekend we are thankful for men and women that have served in the military, that have preserved and given us today freedom in this country. And we pray that You'd sustain the living as You have generations past. Father, greater than that, would You help us to embrace our sovereign, dread, victor, the Lord Jesus Christ? Would You help us to hold on to the victory He died to give us and Lord, would you help us joyously, thankfully share that same liberating, glorious message of Jesus' death and resurrection with others who have not yet found liberty in Christ. Lord, to this end, we give ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen.